Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Great to see you all this morning. Um, thanks for having me back. I'm actually uh, filling in. Uh, many of you may know Tony Myers. Uh, Tony was actually supposed to speak this morning, and he was alone under the weather, and he, he called me and said, hey, Dave, can you, can you fill in for me? And I said, absolutely. So it's great to be back with you all um, here at Emmaus. Uh, as Phil mentioned, I was here in 1992, met my wife Karen here, and it's just a, a very special, special place for me um, and, and for Karen. And so we uh, just great to see you all here this morning, and obviously uh, great to be able to be together um, and worshiping the Lord together this morning. So uh, this morning, I, I'd like to take a quick deep dive, if we could, into the book of Joel. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Joel, and haven't had a chance to read it yet, I'd, I'd highly encourage you, if you can, to, to read through this book at your earliest opportunity. And we're going to go warp speed, and we're actually going to cover all three chapters this morning in a very quick manner. So, but before we do that, let's just uh, open in the word of prayer. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this opportunity this morning for all of us to come together this place to worship. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it does not return void. Lord, as we look into the book of Joel this morning with the key theme of the day of the Lord, Lord, may we continue to remember that our sins lead to disaster, but because of your great mercy, we can have hope. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. We ask that you give me the right words to say this morning. May they not be my words, but your words. And Lord, I ask this all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So as we, as we look at the, the prophet Joel this morning, you're going to find out there really isn't much we know of him. Really, the only thing that we really know of Joel is that he's a son of a man named Pethuel. And apart from that, there's not much that's really known of him. The name Joel actually means Jehovah is God or the Lord is God. And that's pretty cool in itself, isn't it? I mean, just to think about that, that his own name is proclaiming truth about our Lord, that he is God. Many scholars have said uh, that Joel has been even called the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that Joel isn't even mentioned in any other book of the Bible other than in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, Verse 16, he was concerned with Judah and Jerusalem, so it seems like likely that Joel probably lived in that area from what we know. We really don't know the exact time that this book was even written, but it's said that it was probably written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was around the late 7th and early 5th centuries B.C. Now, both Bill McDonald and, and Warren Wearsby in their respective commentaries, they talk about Joel was very familiar with other books of the Old Testament. So much so that he actually, throughout the book of Joel, he actually quotes various passages of Scripture referencing other books of the Old Testament. And the great thing about that today is that it's a perfect, perfect, perfect example for all of us of what we're to do today. We're to be in the Word of God, applying it in our daily lives. And we should know Scripture and be able to recite it when necessary. And the only way we can do that is if we're in God's Word, 
reading it regularly and daily. You know, Joel lived through some very, very terrible times. But through his trials and through his tribulations that we'll talk about here in a little bit, they gave him hope for the future. And if you get just one thing out of this message this morning, I hope it's this. Remember this. God is faithful. He's merciful. And he gives hope to those who are lost. Montague Mills said, Montague Mills said this of Joel. Joel was probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. So this book provides a valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework for the end times, which is faithfully followed by all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel that the preparing of the human race for the end of the temporal era and thus gave an outline of his total plan. Later, prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline, but in keeping with the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. Now, the key phrase of the book of, of Joel is the day of the Lord. And as you see here in these verses that we have up on the screen, it's, it's, they, they're in 115, 2.1, 2.11, 231, and 3.14, they all talk about the day of the Lord. And if, we would, if you could, open your Bibles to Joel. We're going to go to Joel chapter 1. As we look at chapter 1, it's really talking about a past day of the Lord. So we're going to start out by reading, uh, reading this in verses 2 through 12. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have let, left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin and sackcloth grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the oil, olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. So, Here's Joel, right? And he's referring to the recent locust swarm that happened in Israel. And he begins with the description of what happened with the eighth plague in Egypt back in Exodus chapter 10. And you may recall this passage in Exodus where, where the Lord told Moses to go to Pharaoh and ask him to let his people go. And if you refuse, I will bring locusts to your country. Now, a little side note here. How many of you are in Old Testament survey and have had to do the walkthrough? You still do the walkthrough? Anybody know the walkthrough? All right. Well, Dr. Dave Reed was here several years ago, and when we were here, and we had a walkthrough, and there's motions that go through the whole Old Testament. And one of them was 
If you were here, Becky, you know this. I'm not asking you for all of them, but let my people go. No, right? That's what, that's what he said. So those are different versions. So anyway, they, they went through this, and it was something that helped us remember. But this is where we were, right? This is what he's referring to in Exodus chapter 10. But Pharaoh didn't release the Israelites, did he? And that's exactly what happened. A plague of locusts invaded. In the Zondervan Study Bible, it has a note that in March or April, the prevailing east winds would sometimes bring in hordes of these migratory locusts. 50 million of them could occupy about a half square mile and devour as much as 100,000 tons of vegetation in one night. Now, you may or may not know this, but, but recently, and actually currently, there's actually a plague of locusts going on in East Africa, especially in Kenya, and it's spreading to other countries throughout Africa. And if not contained, it could actually spread to other countries and continents. So locusts are about two to three inches in length, and several years ago, National Geographic magazine actually published an article about locust invasions, and they actually explained that these locusts would come in large numbers, and then they would settle on these hillsides and in fields where they lay their eggs in vast numbers. And it was calculated, get this, that some 60,000 insects within a matter of a few weeks, they, they would have this, they would actually, 60,000 insects would come into this area in a 39 inch square inches of soil producing 60,000 insects within a matter of weeks. Now, once hatched, the new broods would actually would start crawling. That probably makes your skin crawl a little bit, right? Like, it, it, they'd start crawling along the ground at a rate of 400 to 600 feet per day, and they would devour every square inch of vegetation as they went. Now, think about that for a moment, okay? Imagine a field of corn, a field of dreams out in Dyersville, whatever it may be, but just think about that. And all that was left of these things was a small stump stalk coming up out of the ground Remember, these two to three inch insects would travel distances up to 200 yards per day, two football fields a day. And you've all heard the farmer's tale probably. If you're in Iowa, you're gonna hear it. Uh, if, you're quiet, if it's quiet enough, you can, hear the far, you can hear the corn grow, all right? You're gonna hear that. Just imagine the sound of these locusts going through, eating two football fields a night, devouring the crops. It's unbelievable. You know, in 1881, uh, Cyprus tried to stop a swarm of locust attack by digging up and actually destroying the locust eggs, which weighed a total of 1,300 tons, okay? And a swarm was seen crossing the Red Sea, actually, in 1889. It was estimated that 120 million locusts, and they covered 2,000 square miles. So I'm going to stop there. I've said enough about the locusts. But listen, we are going through unprecedented times today, okay? We are experiencing things in this country right now and around the world that we've never seen before. People are living in fear and dread for things as, such as COVID, things of rioting, bigotry, politics, hatred, racial tensions, all the stuff that's going on. I could just keep going on and on and on. The point is that God can use anything, anything to get our attention, and if necessary, he will. Just like he used locusts back in Joel's day, he can use anything today to get our attention. We need to be reminded of that. That while God's certainly merciful and he's long-suffering and he's slow to wrath, 
He will not let his children continue to live in a rebellious and sinful way. He will not let it happen. If need be, he's going to interact and he's going to get our attention. The Lord can use anything from a loss of life to our health to weather, many other things to get our attention. But God can put us on our backs so that the only way we can look is up. Also, if God didn't spare his people in the past, if he did not make an exception for his nation and the people of Israel, why would we think that he would spare us? Why would we think that? We live in a great nation in America here, don't we? But God has favored and blessed America in so many ways, but we are foolish. We are foolish to think that God will spare America in her disobedience. Joel, by the Spirit of the Lord, sees that the locust plague is a warning from God, a preview of the coming day of the Lord, as well as a wake-up call and an opportunity to repent and to return to a right relationship with him. So as we get back to Joel chapter 1, we have seen and witnessed what it, might be, what it might be like to be involved in this locust invasion. And Joel does something here that is really good, and it's a great example for all of us. Look at verses 13 through 20. It starts in verse 13, where, whereby Joel is calling for Israel to cry out to the Lord because he sees in this catastrophe the judgment of God leading up to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Put on sackcloths, you priests, and mourn. Will you minister before the altar? Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Now before I go on, it's important to note that the sackcloth that it's talked about here in verse 13 was used as an attire of repentance, okay? It was usually made of coarse black goat's hair, and it was usually worn by mourners as a sign of deep repentance and humility. Remember back in verse 8, it even mentioned mourning like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. So as we go back to verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. So what did Joel do here? He asks for a call to repentance. He starts out calling the elders and the priests to lead the people in prayer. He pleads with them, call out to the Lord, as is shown in verse 14. But then look what he does in verse 19. To you, O Lord, I call for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burned up all the field. Joel takes a great page out of his own playbook, and he himself repents. Have you ever been in a situation where you're looking at your brother or sister in Christ? Maybe it's someone even in this room today. Maybe it's at your church back home, and you're pointing out all the bad things that they've been doing, and deep down, you're asking them to repent, but you haven't repented for the things in your own life. 
and that need to be repented for? Does that happen? I'm not asking you to answer that, but think about that. What about not even ask, uh, what about, not even ask uh, about someone here against, uh, you're against someone in the room, but, but you're currently going through sin and you haven't repented and you need to ask God to forgive you and turn from your wicked ways. Have you done that this morning? I encourage you to do so. Joel wrote these things so that what? So that we would not forget. We would not forget. Every generation needs to be reminded that no matter what you've done, no matter who's against you, you can turn to God and find a new beginning. He does not, however, let us get away with continual willful disobedience of sin. He loves us too much to let us continue in sin. We need to, we need to actually let me rephrase that, we must fear God. We must fear God. The day of the Lord is a day to remember and not forget. And as we get to chapter 2, what's really, what's really now called the future day of the Lord, you see, God is a God of restoration. And he's standing right in front of me with outstretched arms when we fail or we sin against him, and he wants us to be restored to him. In Joel chapter 1, he had their attention. So what does he do? He told the people to stop looking around at the locusts and to start looking ahead to the fulfillment of what the locust plague symbolized, the invasion of a fierce army from the north. We really don't know about any other attack in Scripture of what was coming, but he may have been referring to the Assyrian army invasion during the reign of King Hezekiah, and that actually took place in 701 B.C. But God had allowed the Assyrians to totally ravage the land, but he miraculously delivered Jerusalem from being taken captive. And it starts out in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my old holy hill. Let all who live in the land tr tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. There is a sense of urgency here. God wants us to turn to him today. Not tomorrow, today. Satan's always going to put thoughts in our heads. Every one of us that we can wait for tomorrow. But we must turn away from Satan Look to God today. So here in chapter 2, Joel gave the people three timely instructions. Number one, blow the trumpet. Why? To warn the people. Twice in this passage of Joel, verses 2 through 11, he tells us that the invasion is the day of the Lord, meaning it's a special period that God had planned and would direct. In this section, Joel uses the locusts to describe the soldiers. Warren Wearsby in, in his commentary says this, just as the locusts had destroyed everything edible before them, so the army would use a scorched earth policy and devastate the towns and the land. Joel states very clearly that the Lord is in charge of this invasion, that his, his army is fulfilling his word. You can see this in verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His voices, voice, forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? The second instruction, Joel tells his people to rend your hearts. Just like in chapter 1, he calls for the people to repent of their sins and seek the Lord. They didn't know when the invasion was going to occur, but they needed to turn to the Lord now. Remember that urgency I mentioned in verse 1. It said this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that this was exactly what they needed to happen. Now, not later, now. Look at verses 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Do you see what he's saying here? God's not interested in outward appearance of looking like we have changed. He wants our hearts. He wants us to do a 180-degree turn away from our evil ways and have a heart that is real, and it's a change that is real. Don't you just love how Joel says he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love? He says this because, like I said at the beginning of this message, Joel knew, Joel knew the Old Testament books. He's quoting from Exodus 34 and verse 6, where God forgave Israel and they made the golden calf. Knowing that this is God's character, it ought to motivate, motivate us to seek his face. And in verse 17, Joel cries out and says, Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say amongst the peoples, Where is your God? You see, God wouldn't be able to be glorified if his people were destroyed. Wearsby said it best. The people had to choose between revival, getting right with God, or reproach, robbing God of glory. The third thing that Joel is trying to convey to his people begins in verse 18. It goes through the end of the chapter, and that's believe his promises. This is where the passage takes a little turn because now we're going to see Joel's response. If you look at verse 18, the Lord will be jealous for his land, take pity on his people. He goes on to talk about how God is going to take them from the terrible devastation and turn it from judgment into salvation. What he says in verse 20 through 21, I will drive the northern army away from you, pushing it into the parched and barren land with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear of the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be, uh, be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. So, and I apologize, we're running out of time, Israel. Uh, He's going to restore the devastated lands in verses 20 through to 26. And all the crops that have been eaten and devastated, it's all going to come back alive and abundant once again. If you look at verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, the other locusts and locusts swarm, my army that I sent among you. <clears throat> the last promise is found in verse 27. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. God is there, and he's never gone anywhere. Even during all the issues that the nation faced, why does God do this? God, because he loves us, and, and so that we will actually stop and praise his name. You and I both know that our country and our world need healing today, and we need to be on our knees asking God to spare us from all the calamities, all the things that we're facing today. He's faithful, he's merciful, and he gives us hope. And just as I skip down here as we're running out of time, as we get to chapter 3, he begins by showing God's judgment that God will deal justly with the way Israel's people was treated. And in verses 1 through 8, if you look at that, it talks about nations prepare for judgment. So, as we get there, Wearsby said this, the great battle will take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat at a, at, a, at a site mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. In verse 14, it's called the valley of decision. It's referring to God's decision to punish the nations. And since the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges, the name, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord judges, the name Valley of Jehoshaphat might be well symbolic. But some students believe it refers to the plain of Ezralon, where the battle of Armageddon will be fought, which we read about in Revelation chapter 16. You see, everything's going to change when the king comes back and begins his reign. Joel goes on in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 3, promising a holy city, a restored land, a cleansed people, and a glorious king. And he talks about that through, even though the nation had been ravaged by war, 
famines, droughts, and the invasions of locusts, there's a day coming when it'll be like the Garden of Eden. And that is going to be, it's full of beauty and fulfillment. And remember how the people were wailing because they had no food back in chapter 1? That will not happen when God restores his people in his land. So Joel finishes the book. And as I finish here, he finishes the book by showing us God's mercy and forgiveness and opening up a whole new creation. So what can we learn from Joel today? There's so much packed into these three chapters of the Bible, and I'll give you these three takeaways. First, our sin can cause massive problems and destruction for us and those around us. How many times in the past year have we heard, I can't wait to get back to normal, okay? What's normal? I'm afraid there isn't any normal anymore, right? Our world's getting more and more corrupt. It's more out of cra- It's crazy. And when we turn away from God, problems are going to continue and they will occur. We need a revival in this country. Secondly, it shows us how God wants us to show mercy to those who confess their sin and repent. And even though all this junk is going on around us and sin is still rampant, God still stands there with outstretched arms for those who repent and tells us that no sin, one sin is greater than the other and that he loves us unconditionally. He wants us to turn from our sin and follow him. He stands there ready to forgive. How incredible is that? If we confess and repent and turn from our sins, it will lead to hope, showing us that God will defeat evil in our world and from inside of us. And when that happens, when that happens, he brings his healing presence to make all things new. What a great little book of the Bible where it begins with tragedy, the invasions of locusts, but it closes with triumph. The reign of the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And as Wiersbe said, may we never lose the wonder of his glorious kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you today. We thank you for this time that we could spend looking at your book of Joel. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of these people here today would have an opportunity to be able to look into your word, uh, study this book of Joel, um, these three chapters, and uh, really be able to apply it to their own lives. Lord, we pray that if there's any sin here today in our lives, that we would just eradicate it, that we would flee from it, uh, turn the other way, do a 180, and look to you uh, for forgiveness and uh, direction in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu slash partner.